You're listening to Leading Up with Udemy. This podcast is your guide to developing your skills as an emerging or seasoned leader. I'm Alan Todd, your host and the Vice President of Leadership Development at Udemy. Together, we can work, lead, and live differently to create a better world. I was really excited to have Mary C. Murphy on the podcast today. I think there are some key takeaways you can apply immediately about how to encourage a growth mindset for people on your team. So for team leaders, some really good tips on just how to give feedback and how to give praise right away. You could apply it tomorrow. If we can think of the success of others and if leaders praise people as inspiration, what have been some of the mistakes that we had to overcome? How did this person contribute to the learning for the whole team so that we're not making these mistakes again and actually we're doing things better and differently than we've done before? That moves everyone towards their growth mindset. This week, I'm speaking with social psychologist Mary C. Murphy author of the new book, Cultures of Growth, which is out in March. Mary holds an endowed professorship in the Department of Psychological and Brain Sciences at Indiana University, and she studies motivation and achievement. She studied under and works closely with growth mindset pioneer Carol Dweck at Stanford. Dweck has called Mary's work on organizational mindset an important idea for research and even more so an important idea for society. In her new book, Cultures of Growth, Mary expands upon Dweck's research to explore organizational mindset, that is, how institutions create culture from the top down. The book offers some incredible insights about how to transform organizations and teams to help every person reach their potential. Mary, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Alan. It's such a pleasure to be with you today and with your audience. Yeah, thanks so much. We're thrilled to have you. And I'd love to get started by grounding us in Carol Dweck's work first. So talk to us about mindset. Absolutely. So mindset was an idea that Carol developed in the late 70s and early 1980s. And she really focused on this question of what actually motivates people's optimal performance. And when she came to study this, it actually came from a history of studying learned helplessness in, of all animals, dogs. (laughs) And what actually caused individuals, dogs, and then later she looked at this in children, what actually caused that kind of learned helplessness behavior in the face of challenges and unpredictability? And she came up with these two ideas, the fixed mindset, which holds that uh, you either have it or you don't, that ability, talent, intelligence is something that's relatively static. You're born with a certain amount and you can't do much over the lifespan to change it. The growth mindset, on the other hand, holds that these kinds of abilities, talent, intelligence, ability, is something that is a potential within each of us, and that we can do a lot to develop and grow that potential over time with good strategies, persistence, and help-seeking and mentoring. And what she found, and her colleagues and her students over the course of 30 years, was that when individuals, students, adults, hold these fixed or growth mindset beliefs, it affects all kinds of behavior and motivational patterns, like what we do when we make a mistake and whether or not we're willing to take risks and the extent to which we respond adaptively to challenges and failures. And so for 30 years, that has been the study really developing the base knowledge of 
what a mindset is, how we embody those mindsets at the individual level, and how they impact our motivation, behavior, and achievement. Yeah. So one area where I think I've seen a ton of confusion in Dweck's work is that it's this either-or dichotomy and not a spectrum. And you write about it, but can you clear that up for us about, do we have to have one or the other? It's such a good point, Alan. Absolutely. This is one of the biggest, I think, misconceptions about mindset. I think there's about three misconceptions about mindset that are really important to surface. As we move this concept from education, where it's been most studied, into business and organizations. And to your point exactly, if you Google fixed or growth mindset, you are going to get these images of two heads (laughs) and it's going to say fixed or growth mindset, right? And it's going to say, which one are you? Like basically it's suggesting that you have one or the other and that it's located just inside your head, right? And usually the fixed one is in red. You can tell that's the bad one to have. And the growth mindset is the good one to have. (laughs) And, And this is a real problem because We know from the literature, the way mindset has always been studied and the way that it actually operates in the world, we all have both mindsets and we inhabit our fixed mindset at different predictable times and situations, what I call these different mindset triggers. And we operate in our growth mindset in many other kinds of contexts. And so to understand mindset and normalize it as something that we all have, the fixed and the growth, and that it exists on this mindset continuum. And then the question becomes, How do we move along that mindset continuum? When do we notice ourselves shifting more towards fixed mindset? And what can we do, in particular, emerging leaders and seasoned leaders? What can we do to move folks more towards growth along their own continuum? Yeah, and I want to go deep on that. But before we do, how did you come to think about Dweck's work with organizations? How did that conversation begin? Because like you said, mindset, work has been studied for three decades. And this is kind of pioneering new work. Yeah, I'll tell you the mindset culture origin story. (laughs) Yeah, perfect. So the mindset culture origin story is that I was a graduate student just finishing my PhD in my last year of my PhD at Stanford. And Carol Dweck had moved from Columbia to Stanford And so she was brand new to the faculty. And so these ideas of mindset were just starting to permeate around Stanford. And what happened for me was that at the end of every year in the PhD program, graduate students present to their faculty members and to the whole department the work that they've been doing across the year. And this happens in different areas of psychology, social psychology, clinical psychology, neuroscience, right? And so I would go to these end-of-the-year seminars to support my friends, and I really noticed a different orientation in these seminars. In one seminar, the faculty who were National Academy's most prestigious faculty in the world, and they were competing against each other. Who was the smartest in the room? Who could take down the students the quickest, find the fatal flaw? You know, these sorts of things. And I saw what it did to students. Students started to have a lot of you know, um, uh, these speech disfluencies. They started to blank out. They started to choke, even though they knew their work the best and could recite it forward to back. I also noticed in other seminars, the faculty took a different approach. Though they were still the most decorated and most prestigious faculty, now this group of faculty from a different orientation really focused on, yes, identifying the problems with the student study, but actually now competing with each other to figure out what would be the best strategy to improve the work. 
So should we do this different manipulation? How about this measure? You know, now they're brainstorming. And I saw what that did to students. Students were able to engage. They were able to participate in the conversation. And at the end, they were way more motivated to actually go and continue the work. And so I took this insight to Carol and I said, Carol, has anyone studied this idea of the fixed mindset, not as just a psychological component inside people's heads, but actually as a function of groups and teams and organizations and divisions, right? Whole groups of people and how those norms around that fixed and growth mindset actually impact the people within those contexts. And she said, Mayor, Nobody's ever thought of this, but we should do it together. And so that sort of unleashed the whole work that was in 2007. And so our first paper on cultures of genius and cultures of growth comes out in 2010. And since then, we've been working on this, not just in the lab, but also with hundreds of companies from very small startups to, you know, Fortune 100 companies around the world. Yeah, thanks. And I want to make sure we're clear about what is a culture of genius and culture of growth. Is culture of genius similar to fixed mindset and culture of growth, growth mindset? So maybe give us that definition and explain why it's a spectrum. Absolutely. So in a fixed mindset culture, a fixed mindset culture is something I call a culture of genius. The focus is really on star performers. And in that culture, it is communicated through our practices, our policies, our norms, and our leadership messages that people are inherently gifted. Some are going to be more capable than others that have this natural superior talent and ability. It reifies this genius idea and it puts the focus on those stars and those identified as genius and valorizes them, gives them resources, gives them a lot of leeway in the organization to make uh, decisions and set strategy and that sort of thing. Like hero worship. Exactly. Hero worship. Exactly. is a culture of genius, right? Now, the culture of genius, it sounds so great. It just sounds sexy, right? Like everybody wants to be a part of a culture of genius. And it's also how I know people haven't read the book (laughs) because they would then know that culture of genius is actually, you know, the one that we see so many issues and problems with and how many industries across the world have really brought forward this genius model and reified it in their policies and practices and their interactions and in their leadership messages and the consequences of that. The culture of genius, the hero worshiping, you've described some of the downsides. You've said that those cultures are, they're like, the the genius cultures are like 40% less satisfied with their culture, which is kind of odd. That's right. Well, I think the culture of genius, that's the predominant mode and nobody would want to admit it, but I think it's true. I'm wondering if you can give an example of a company or a situation on how it manifests in a way that's kind of surprised, like it's just everywhere. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think there's many examples. I think that Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos is a very strong example of a culture of genius, where she had an idea initially for a patch that would have all of these tests that could be run using a new technology that she would develop. She took it to her Stanford faculty. Her faculty told her, "Mm, there's some real challenges and problems with this kind of idea. Here are going to be some of the things you need to consider. She kind of ignored that situation. 
Michigan. And then she found other faculty who really thought of her and described her in many of their writings and things as sort of the next Steve Jobs, right? She was going to be this leader, this transformational character within Silicon Valley that was going to transform this particular challenge in healthcare around blood testing and being able to test for many different kinds of diseases and maladies. What we see is that, you know, raising an IPO (laughs) and raising venture capital, right? To be able to do this, you really have to embody many times this culture of genius, right? I'm the one, I am the next transformative leader who can actually fulfill this vision and make it a reality. And so she was able to accrue a lot of capital. She was able to accrue a lot of support around her. And, you know, I think that it really actually impacted her challenges that she came across, and also her responses to those challenges. When her team was telling her that they were coming up against really scientific challenges of being able to do this from a technological perspective, what did she do? She, rather than listen to that team, she brought in another team, pitted them against each other and said, the winner can keep your job, right? That's a culture of genius. <laughs> also, this uh, this willingness to sort of take ethical shortcuts and to, you know, mispresent and lie about the information. That's a culture of genius when you're really needing to hold on to your status and to be seen in the world as um, maintaining that status of a genius. People will often engage in this kind of behavior. And so we know what the consequences of that was. Um I think we've seen it in WeWork with Adam Newman. I think we've seen it in many other contexts. You know, one of the things I write about is just how shocking it is that those featured on the 30 under 30 Forbes list have actually now served jail time (laughs) for integrity and ethical behavior issues when put on this pedestal of genius, right? What does that do to us and to actually the thing we're trying to forward to make the world a better place, right? I think that there's significant consequences. And these are just some examples. Yeah. All right. So let's move over to a culture of growth. How how do we start to shift the culture from genius to growth-minded? Yeah. Well, a culture of growth, just to define it for everybody here, it really is communicating through these same cultural artifacts, leadership messages, policies, practices, norms, that talent, ability, and intelligence is, as we've said, a potential. And that given the right supports, there's a strong belief among all within the organization that everyone can succeed, right? And again, most environments are going to be some mixture of both. And so how do we move from a culture of genius to a culture of growth? First, we have to identify in a team what are some of the policies and practices that might be unintentionally right, creating one of these cultures of genius that really is having a negative, probably unintended consequence on people's behavior, on their motivation, and on their interactions with each other. I think this is where emerging leaders and seasoned leaders can have outsized impact, though I will make the argument that Everyone in an organization is a culture creator. We all contribute, right, to the culture. And so there is something that we can do no matter our role in the organization. But because I know that many here are leaders um, and emerging leaders, that, you know, I'll focus on some of the things that we know we can be doing differently to create more of these cultures of growth. I mean, we can pay attention to a lot of the ways that we normalize our interactions, right? How do we give feedback to each other? How do we give critical feedback? Is it 
really setting people up to think that this is a pronouncement on your skills and abilities. It's going to tell me whether you have it or you don't have it, right? How do we give difficult assignments when we know it's going to really stretch people beyond their current capacity and beyond their current knowledge base to actually motivate people to come at this from a learning perspective rather than a proving and performing perspective, right? That moves people to their fixed mindset. We also really focus on praise. You know, one of the things that we've seen over and over in companies is that the modal way that leaders give praise and peers give praise to each other is say, hey, Alan, like, good job. Great work. And what does that do, right? I mean, it feels good in the moment, of course, but does it tell us anything about what was actually good in that moment and how we can replicate that and maybe even take it further in the next time, right? When I'm making the next presentation or writing the next report or engaging with the client in a different way, right? What actually in my behavior was so laudable? So I know that that's what I want to really focus on replicating and besting in the next iteration of when I do that particular thing. And so people really under, I think, appreciate how much giving praise through the lens of growth mindset can create this growth mindset culture that keeps people motivated to continue to do excellent work. So can you talk about the triggers? I think that's an important concept that you write about and one that we can start to unpack that I think people can start to identify these trigger situations and start to apply some of this thinking. Yeah. Well, first, let me say here that, you know, when we think about mindset culture. Mindset culture is multi-level, right? It's multi-layered. And there could be a large organizational mindset culture communicated through our organization-wide practices, policies, and leadership messages, executive messages. Then there can be micro-cultures, right, of growth and genius that exist on different teams, divisions, parts of the organization, right? I've been, I've worked with a lot of technology companies and the R&D area within these companies generally tends to be very growth-minded. But when I look at finance and fiscal responsibilities, or when I look at legal, (laughs) I see much more cultures of genius, right? And so to really understand these different situations and the ways in which these situations move us towards our fixed and growth mindset in the moment, that's where the mindset triggers come in. And the mindset triggers are for predictable and very common situations that move people towards their fixed and growth mindset more of the time. And those are high level, I'll just list them and then we can go into them. Evaluative situations, high effort situations, critical feedback, and the success of others. Now, evaluative situations are those situations where we anticipate some kind of evaluation. Maybe it's before our 360, maybe we're about to give a big report or meet with a very high stakes client. And we know that how we perform here is going to be evaluated and be linked to the success of us as individuals or the organization as a whole. And many times those evaluative situations can move us towards our fixed mindset. How do we know we're moved to the fixed mindset? Well, we can feel the tension of having to really engage in the preparation for this from a prove and perform kind of stance. I talk a lot about the I know kid here. Like if you have children, you know, kids go through a stage of, I know, I know, I know. Don't tell me how to do it. I know, I know, I know. (laughs) And we have a lot of compassion for those kids, right? But we have less compassion for the I know adult. And what we know, what we see with the I know adult is that they're being driven into their fixed mindset by these evaluative situations. Don't tell me when the meeting is. I know. Don't tell me how to do that report. I know, right? That is really a sign that we're moving 
based on this um, assignment or this evaluative situation towards our fixed mindset relative to our growth. The next trigger is high effort situations. That's where we often are given a stretch assignment or we're given an assignment in which we haven't yet mastered all that we need to know to do that assignment or that particular performance well. And so it's going to take a lot of effort, right? And it's going to take different strategies than what I've used before. And the key there are what we call these effort ability beliefs. If we think that applying a lot of effort means, if it doesn't come easy to me, right? It means that I have low ability or I'm not going to be able to perform at the very highest level of this particular task then we find ourselves really moving into that fixed mindset by high effort situations. If I have to work hard, it means I don't have it naturally or otherwise, right? And so high effort situations and how leaders actually give the people that they're supervising or those that they're working with and their teams, these high effort tasks, which really, let's be honest, if we're going to be innovating, it's going to be a lot of high effort tasks and brand new tasks and different ways of doing things. How do we do that in a way that shifts people towards growth rather than pushing them towards their fixed mindset? The third mindset trigger is critical feedback. Now, this is not when we're anticipating evaluation. Now the evaluation has come. And, you know, we didn't hit the mark. What does that mean for us? And how does that move us towards our fixed or our growth mindset? If we think about that critical feedback as a pronouncement on our abilities, that's static, right? I either have it or I don't. And clearly here, I don't have it. I made a mistake. That means that I don't have it. It really moves us towards our fixed mindset. And if the whole team gets moved based on our feedback practices that we have with each other towards our fixed mindset, we're not going to be taking risks. We're not going to be wanting to make mistakes, right? And so we see that critical feedback trigger as one that operates at the individual level and is really important for team dynamics and organizational dynamics, How what our feedback practices are. And the last one is the one in academia and also um, in the world that really matters, especially for leaders, is the success of others. When other people have success or when leaders in an organization praise particular individuals, what does it do to our mindset? Depending on how they do it, if they're really praising these individuals as, you know, the very, very, very best, right? That they're geniuses, that this just came from nowhere, right? Not acknowledging the work and the effort and the distance traveled that had to be done for that success. It can move people towards their fixed mindset where we say, well, I'm never going to be as good as he is or as she is, right? Um, why even try? It actually demotivates people and it can lead to a lot of disengagement in the workplace. Whereas if we can think of the success of others and if leaders praise people as inspiration, really helping show what the journey to that has been, what have been some of the mistakes that we had to overcome? How did this person contribute to the learning for the whole team so that we're not making these mistakes again and actually we're doing things better and differently than we've done before? That moves everyone towards their growth mindset. And so really when it comes down to these four mindset triggers, it's essential for us to understand our own mindset triggers, but for leaders, how do we actually create these situations that are common in the workplace environment to move people along these different dimensions towards growth each time that we are assigning work or giving feedback 
or asking people to engage in high effort situations that they've never engaged in before or praising people on the team, right? These are the mindset triggers that we can shape for people as we get to know the mindset triggers of those we interact with and supervise. We can really start to create a culture of growth around them. buzz around Gen AI isn't going anywhere. Leaders and managers are key to identifying how their companies can use the technology and creating a plan to grow their employees' skills. Learn how Udemy can help at business.udemy.com forward slash Gen AI now. So let's talk about the culture of growth now at the sort of the highest level. You gave a good example of Microsoft, and I'm deeply familiar with the story from Satya Nadella taking over at a low where there was kind of this know-it-all culture in the Balmer era. I'm reminded of a PC magazine article that, that the title was, Why Does Everyone Hate Steve Ballmer? <laughs> and it was at the end of his, <laughs> his, at the end of his tenure. And then Satya Nadella comes in. And of course, as we know, if we look at the the value of that company today, it's about 10 times what it was when he was promoted to CEO. And he spent a lot of time thinking about growth mindset and Carol Dweck, and I know you did some work there. So I'm wondering, maybe you could talk about just the Microsoft story, because I think it's a powerful story about culture change that led to value creation. That's absolutely correct. Yeah. So everyone uses Microsoft as an example of this, that, or the other. And so I was hesitant whether I should put this in the book. But of course, you know, Satya himself talks about how important Carol's work and the idea of mindset was for the culture change that he engaged in. So it just seemed to be a huge omission if I didn't talk about it. Right. Um, and so when Satya first took over Microsoft, he was asked to describe what's it like to work at Microsoft? What's the culture like today? And he pointed to this cartoon, this infamous cartoon, where you have all these leaders in a boardroom and they all have guns and they're all pointing them to each other, against each other, right? That's the culture he inherited. A culture of genius in which we are really like high stakes, who's the smartest in the room, right? And so he was inspired by Carol's work and said, okay, I'm going to announce that we are going to be the first growth-minded organizational culture in the world. And we're going to start by, you know, thinking about how this applies. Kathleen Hogan was very involved in this from an HR perspective. How do we deal with this through our policies, our practices, how we onboard people culturally, how we promote people and evaluate people in the organization? But I will say that, you know, when he announced this culture change, this is how important high-level leaders, executives are to creating the culture. Satya says growth mindset is going to be the metric by which we make strategic decisions and HR decisions and investment decisions and collaboration decisions within this organization, right? So then what do the next stage leaders do? And he talks about this in Hit Reset, his own book. They now start to point the finger at each other around now mindset. Mindset becomes the label and the thing to compete on. So, hey, you know, Satya, that guy just has a fixed mindset. 
I don't think you want to be dealing with his suggestion. I have more of a growth mindset. You should be listening to me. And so he quickly saw this value implementation gap and how you had to minimize the value implementation gap in the company to make it real in terms of behavior. It can't just be what we say. It can't just be labels that we apply to people. It actually has to be visible in what we do, how we make decisions, how we interact with each other behaviorally and normatively in the organization. Most recently, he talked about how their new evaluation system is going to really um, embed a lot of these growth mindset principles in evaluation and promotion within the organization. He moved the organization from stack ranking, which is a huge culture of genius, you know, popularized by Jack Welch at GE, Um, stack ranking where you kind of line everybody up and the top, depending on your company, 10% or 20% might be the ones that are sort of the geniuses. They get to stay, they get a lot of power and resources and the bottom 10 to 20%, well, they're going to be let go, right? And replaced. And the middle then have to compete to be sure that they don't fall below the line, right? What does that do internally, right? When we think about that, how does that set us up? And at Microsoft, there was a lot of discussion. They would have these epic long meetings where different folks would be jockeying to be sure that their folks didn't end up in that bottom 20%, right? So it really focused people on proving, performing, who's the genius. And so he got rid of stack ranking because he saw that that was a practice that was really contributing to that fixed mindset culture within the company. Yeah, I think there's a corollary to this, I would say, and and you write about the bought versus built teams. And Udemy is a learning company, right? And so we have our bias around development. And I'm wondering if you could just talk about the difference between buying a team through better recruiting versus building a team through better development and better learning. What's the difference? Yeah, great point. So this is based on some research done out of University of Kansas and a few other schools. And what they really looked at was people's perceptions of bought versus built teams. And they started, of course, in sports, right? We know some very infamous teams uh, that really grow their success through recruiting the stars that you know exist across the league and then bring them into our organization. And by having this all-star team, we are going to buy our way to the championship, right? <laughs> um, in some ways. And you know, when people are are asked about these bought versus built teams, almost always on average, we see big effects that people prefer the built teams to the bought teams, right? There's something about our understanding, particularly when it comes to American work ethic, right? We like to think that, you know, the development that comes with building a team over time, right? Taking people who have a certain skill set and then helping them work together, helping them build their own skill set so that they become a team that works so well together, that that is something we want to reward. That's something that's attractive to us. But then they also looked at how these teams perform. And in our own research, we looked at whether bought versus built teams actually perform differently. And you would think, right, from a I don't know, logic perspective, that if you really created one of these cultures of genius where you're identifying who the genius is in your industry and then figuring out ways to recruit them, now you have a whole organization filled with geniuses, that that would be more consistently successful um, for outcomes 
Then if you were growing, which takes some time, right? It takes resources. It takes time. It also takes an understanding of where people are to know what kind of resources and strategies and supports they need. So it is more effortful in many ways, right? But you know, people thought, well, those genius teams, those are going to be the ones that really outcompete and outperform. And our research shows that it's just the opposite. Our research shows that in these cultures of genius, people are really focused on their own status. They're focused on how do I preserve my label, my, my reputation within this organization. And that means that they have divided energy and attention to the work of the organization, right? And their own tasks in front of them. And so they're always looking over their shoulder and new star is born every day and brought into the organization. And this internal competition actually undermines innovation, risk-taking, performance of these teams. So I would say that, you know, when it comes to built versus bought teams and organizations, investing in that building through strategies and working with courses that Udemy and others provide, I think is a really important strategy for the long term, right? You're going to actually see much better outcomes, both from a team perspective and the dynamic of a team, innovation, risk-taking, resilience, creativity, and performance, bottom line outcomes than bot teams. I love that research and it supports so many things that I believe about the world. One thing is collaboration. You've written about collaboration and I'd be curious if you could tell us everybody wants more of it. We see the word, I could probably think of hundreds of companies where collaboration is some kind of core value or it's on a wall. It's a critical thing. And I think done well leads to innovation, right? People work together and they drive new and better ways to serve customers, et cetera. So what can you tell us about collaboration and creating and these two cultures? Mm -hmm. I think we have to think about what is the purpose of collaboration and how do we actually incentivize the kind of collaboration we want to see in the organization? So collaboration can take many forms, right? You can have sort of a leader that brings down edicts to the team and then forces the team to sort of work together on various things. Or you can have the kind of collaboration where good ideas come from everywhere and that we're all going to bring something different and unique, a skill set, a knowledge base, an approach that's actually going to, the goal is to make the approach or the outcome or the thing that we're producing better, stronger, more competitive, right, in the marketplace. And so how do we set up those collaborative orientations? That's the question of culture. And I think that one of the ways that we can do this is to really think about how we praise people within the teams, right? Are we really praising people for whose idea was that? That was a brilliant idea. I'm going to like really praise the individual or am I going to praise the team as a whole? Sometimes focusing on who owns ideas is a quick way to kill collaboration because now we know that we have to hold our ideas. We have to be seen as the people that have those ideas or those approaches. And so really focusing on the team effort and how individuals interacted with each other to create the outcome or the product or the service that we're trying to create, telling those stories and making that a norm for the team dynamics, how we interact with each other, we can actually stoke more growth-minded collaboration on those teams. Yeah, I love it because team leaders can apply that tomorrow, right? So just focusing on the way you think about praise and praising effort and collaboration and sort of teamwork instead of kind of the heroics of a single person. 
That's right. Can I just add one more thing? (laughs) Sure, of course. There's been a move uh, with performance evaluation strategies in different sectors where we have seen that people are actually getting points in their 360 reviews and others for the ways in which they contributed to team efforts and the ways in which they took the learning that happened within teams and actually disseminated that learning broadly across different kinds of parts of the organization. And that's another way when we think about evaluation, when we ask people, you know, how did you contribute to the team effort? And we incentivize them with real outcomes that matter to people's bottom line and to their feeling that they're making progress and that they're being successful in the organization. Yeah, I love it. And I think there's a movement afoot. I mean, performance management has gotten such a bad rap. Everybody feels terrible about it. Managers, <laughs> individual contributors. And I think, you know, the entire field seems as though there's some type of progression towards finding a way that has a little bit more respect, self-respect and nobility and humanity for the individual. And I think all of it points towards the culture of growth that you're describing and really away from the culture of genius. Absolutely. A big example of that is Patagonia and how Patagonia has approached their performance management. They really took a page out of sustainable agriculture and understanding that, you know, when farmers are considering how to farm, it used to be the old practice. We put something down into the ground, you harvest it up. And then you continue to do that. And what was discovered, of course, is that, you know, you're taking out all the minerals, all of the great parts of the soil and not replenishing them, that fully extraction really undermines the goal of being able to sustainably produce, you know, what's important here, right? The fruits and vegetables that are being grown. And they thought about how that applies in the context of performance management. And they saw that, of course, as you say, everyone hates performance reviews. It was the worst part of the year. And so they thought, you know, what are we extracting in this process from people and what are we putting in? And they noticed that they had very little inputs to people's, you know, development, the actual actionable feedback that they could take from those performance reviews and put them into practice, the resources and strategies they needed to improve. And they decided to put the emphasis on that rather than that extractive kind of evaluative context. And ultimately, they chose to get rid of performance reviews. And now it's an opt-in system in which people can really put in what their goals are and their progress towards their goals. And that is much more actionable from an HR perspective. They got so much more data that was actionable about how to actually help people within the organization, how to maintain employees in this great resignation. They were very successful in that. And it just produced better outcomes for them overall as an organization. So you're right on that. I think this we've got to reimagine performance management. Yep. And I love the metaphor to sustainable farming or the analogy. I love metaphors of organizations more in ecosystems and living things as opposed to the metaphor of the machine. And a lot of things for me to reflect on, on thinking about that whole concept of sustainable farming. How do you create sustainable leadership? How do you create sustainable leaders or leaders who create sustainable positive culture and growth-minded culture? I think there's a lot to think about there. Yes, exactly right. All right, Mary, as we wrap up here, we have a question that we ask all of our guests, and that is, what are you curious about and learning now? 
I have so many things um, that I am learning and excited about. <laughs> One thing I started taking up this summer, I've started to learn the cello. Wow. And as a kid, I played piano and violin. And now I am into the cello and I have progressed. I am, you know, hot cross buns and twinkle, twinkle, little star. <laughs> and really <laughs> starting it from just for me. I have no desire to play for anyone else or in any kind of formal group, but it's been so invigorating and so much fun. And so I would say the cello is something that I'm into these days. Oh, beautiful. All right, Mary, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Alan, thank you so much for having me. Udemy is an incredible organization. I have used many of their resources and, and courses in my own work, and I so appreciate you having me here today. Thank you. Thanks again to Mary C. Murphy for joining us today on the podcast. Follow Leading Up, a podcast from Udemy Business, wherever you find your podcast. We'll be back next Wednesday with another episode to help you level up your leadership skills. Follow the show so you never miss a new episode. And if you like the show, leave a rating or a review. We love the feedback and it really helps us to find new listeners. To learn more about Leading Up or how Udemy can help you develop leaders at scale and move business forward, visit business.udemy.com. The Leading Up podcast is produced in partnership with Pod People. Our original theme is by Soundboard.